This is episode seven of the Filmmaking the Hard Way podcast. I am Josh Folan, and as is always the case, I am having a coffee today with a talented filmmaker in the low to micro budget filmmaking space. Today, I am chatting with Ryan Geelin, who is a independent filmmaker that I have known for over a decade. He and I did a film together called The Graduates. And mid-2000s in Ocean City, Maryland, uh, where I was a supporting actor. He wrote, directed, and uh, we have uh, circled each other uh, numerous times since in New York and now in L.A. Uh, He wrote the foreword on my book, The Filmmaking Filmmaking the Hard Way. Uh, And, uh, yeah, we've just known each other for a long time, and he's a brilliant and awesome dude. And he has a new documentary called My Beautiful Stutter that he is a direct, the director on. And uh, we are – he shared that with me already and I watched it the other night and we are chatting today about that film. I'm here with – Is Ryan Geelin. And I am – G- Geelin? Yeah. I've been mispronouncing your name for a decade. <laughs> You're not the only one. Don't worry about it. Uh, and we are, are going to be discussing a documentary project that he has been working on for – uh, I assume sometime now, uh, called My Beautiful Stutter. Yeah. And uh, he shared with me last night, pre-release, which was very kind of him, and it's a beautiful film, dude. Uh, I, I uh, had, had some choked up moments, so you're, you're winning in that regard. <laughs> uh, the first thing I'd like to ask, uh, as just a tone setter, is what was the first dollar you earned in the entertainment industry, or as an entertainment industry professional? Uh, what was the job, and how did you score it? Um, I think like a lot of people, the first job was awful, like god awful. It was on a short film about a uh, a condom that gets lost during sex, and the this the characters were all sort of like really horrible stock, like Neil Simon meets the worst sitcom you've ever heard. It was poorly produced. The director and DP were really, really obnoxious to the cast and crew. They were a little older. The cast and crew were all sort of young hustlers doing the job for almost nothing. So it's a combination of like terrible material, terrible team, and it was one of the best learning experiences I've ever had because I can remember, you know, almost every minute of the prep and the shoot, like, evaluating all the things I never wanted to do, all the behaviors I never wanted to emulate, all the ways I never wanted to talk about what I was doing or treat people. Um, It was just a fantastic lesson in what not to do. Um, What was your capacity on it? My role was a production assistant, just every every piece of, of, you know, I say like shit work, but it's it's important shit work because you do have to, if you're gonna, eventually guide people on how to operate on a production. You have to start at the bottom and learn. I think it helps to start at the bottom and kind of learn everything. So especially if you're going to do this independently where you're not immediately going into the studio system and all the jobs are like super drilled down to, to super specifics. You know, if, if you're planning to create film and, and theater on your own, to start at the bottom and work your way up will make you a much better manager director, producer, production manager. Um, so the so being a production assistant on this meant I was around everybody all the time. The actors, the producer, the director. Um, 
in in and out of like little script meetings, in and out of the the shooting days, um, running around picking up all the props and the gear, and you know, aside from just learning the behaviors of the people and the mindset of the people that I didn't want to emulate, what I also learned is I I want to try to avoid producing in New York City as much as possible. <laughs> and I wasn't very good at it. It took me a long time to get out of New York to start doing it out here. But like, if you've driven a cube truck in in and out of New Jersey and New York to like pick up gear and drop off gear on, on actual locations instead of in studios, like you you have wanted to blow your brains out multiple times a day for the entire, for the run of production. You know? so, like, so anyway, it was, it was a great learning experience. The, the job was terrible. And, and just to give a really specific example, like, the no one when you're doing it's supposed to be a comedy when you're doing a comedy and no one is laughing there are no outtakes there's no laughter on set there's no joy between the performers the the director and the producer who who really believed that you know in their in their mid 40s this was the thing that was going to break them through they like, were in their mid 40s yeah and, and nobody's laughing and they are un- incapable of doing anything to change the vibe on set, to change the script, to get people to laugh. Like, they started to become meaner and meaner toward the people around them because they were embarrassed that they, they weren't pulling off this comedy and wasn't playing the way they thought. And instead of just calling a timeout, sending everybody home early, doing a rewrite, asking other people who are funny, who had good comedy experience or or who could help elevate this material, asking them to work on it. Instead of regrouping and like really fixing things, they just got meaner. And they took it out on the crew. They took it, especially on the junior members of the crew. Um, meaner, sharper, more freaked out um, that they were failing in some way. And like my takeaway from that wasn't like, the your mid-40s is too late to start. My takeaway from that wasn't... Um, Comedy is is super hard, and if you are failing at it, you should stop. My takeaway from that was like, what we are all trying to do is difficult, and you have a great opportunity to read the room. You have a great, whether it's a comedy or a drama or a thriller or horror, you have a great opportunity to read the people around you, even if you don't think they're on your level or they're as experienced or they have the longest resume, like, neither of the the people in charge stopped and said why isn't this working right and like I I thought that was a huge mistake on their part and you know I I know I sound super negative about this but it's (laughs) it's actually very cathartic to talk about because like (laughs) it was it was a terrible experience I think about it a lot and it, it informed quite a bit and I'm sure there are people listening who have had similar or on their way to similar and and I think like to put a positive spin on this, because I do believe that it was ultimately a positive experience, even the gigs that that suck in the moment, there has to be that piece of you that is absorbing and writing down and remembering the things you want to do better when it's your turn or when you create your turn. For sure, for sure. A uh, really cool, I can't, I wish I could remember who and what podcast it was, I get credit where credit was due, but I was listening to a producer talk on some show I was listening to a couple weeks ago, and he was saying that something he learned from a producer he worked for as a production assistant ever so long ago that was he has carried over into his uh, full career. Actually, he does this on every project, and I, it was one of the 
most beautiful and cool things I've ever heard. He's like, every production assistant he hires for every one of his productions. Uh, he doesn't do it every day because it would be a little much, but throughout the shoot, at least a few times, he walks up to the production assistant when they have a down moment and asks them what they learned today. And in doing that, one, you learn more about these people and just, it's just, you know, our job as filmmakers is to just life, soak up life, have people tell you things. Uh, so it's helpful in that regard too, but uh, he also has learned, because like once you're working up here on the production, you don't hear about everything that happens down here, you know? So he's, 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 he's bettered his production situations by doing this, but it's also just teaching these kids that are working in that position you were in to do something the right way and if, and if you make that impression on them there, they will, all, they will do this the rest of their life. It was just, it was just yeah. a really beautiful thing that what? it's like passing, painted forward kind of thing yeah. that also selfishly helps you a great deal too because you learn stuff about your immediate situation and it just, yeah, teaches you, I think. Yeah. It's th really cool. I think that's crazy valuable, especially because what he is suggesting to these people is like, hey, look, even if you think the movie sucks, even if you think the job sucks, like you should still be really focused above all else on learning. Like that's what he's telling them too, sure. right? Like up to, to your, you know, beyond the points you're making, which I totally agree with. Like he's also just instilling them with the idea of like, you, I may seem successful because I'm at the top of the pyramid on the shoot, but really like I've done jobs I hate. And my advice to you, even though he's not saying it as advice, like he is saying my advice to you is focus on learning. For sure. Yeah. And also this is, there's no, dis, no, no business I've ever encountered uh, where the power distance is less. The person who is production assistant on this project is producing, can be producing one the next day. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, I was UPMing the shoot I just did up in Santa Clarita, working for a guy who has produced far, far fewer films than I have, you know? And like, that's, it fluctuates in this business. So just talking to uh, everyone and treating them all on an equal playing field and not viewing it as a hierarchy, I think is just a responsible way to approach this yeah. business in general. That's a great point. Uh, that was way too long on the first question. Well, you know, to, <laughs> it's, it's a great point because on this same gig, uh, a, a girl who was UPM, who was my direct report, right? And, and she, she might have been below UPM, but anyway, she was right above me on this. We were the same age. We were both like 24. Um, literally went from doing this awful short where she was treated like shit to producing a $3 million indie within three, four weeks. And the, the three, four million dollar indie was in the works while she's doing this to make a couple bucks. Um, so just to your point, like you, you really do never know. Yeah. And and to think this, if, this if business were, is full of hustlers, especially the ones that you do want to know. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Okay, so the project, your elevator pitch of it for my beautiful stutter. Yes, correct. There are seventy million people around the world who stutter, and. The vast majority of them have been told their entire lives that they are failing, that they are less than, that they should focus on fluency, and if they can't achieve fluency, that they are less valuable than other members of society. Our whole world is built to teach them and show them that, and it's 100% wrong. The way that they speak is beautiful, and it's us that needs to change. We need to learn to listen. What attracted me to this project and what I think the audience will be attracted to is there are a few people in stuttering who are dedicating their lives to changing the viewpoint that fluency should be the goal. There are a few people in stuttering, and it's a revolution right now, who are focusing on showing young people, teaching young people, 
that the way you speak is beautiful. You have a right to be heard. So you have to demand to be heard. Love yourself, love your stutter, demand to be heard. And we will, we will all work together to change the world toward that idea. So I followed um, five young people and a, a visionary guy named Tara Alexander who runs an organization for young people called the Stuttering Association for the Young. I followed Taro and these five kids from all over the country for two years. Um, and I followed them, I met them at, when they were all at different points in their lives. They ranged from nine years old to 18 years old. Some had been working with Taro and the Stuttering Association for the Young uh, for 10 years. Some were just entering for the very first time and I, I met them and, and followed them into the program. Um, but every one of them, even though their stories and their backgrounds are so different, every one of them was coming from the same place when they had entered say some of them were still in that place of i really don't know if i'm worthy and you fill in the blank worthy of love worthy of a good life worthy of opportunity worthy of being here right every single one of them and it's solely because our whole world our society focuses on fluency and if you lack fluency we will mock you we will deride you we will make you feel less than, we will bully you, to the point where many young people who stutter contemplate taking their own lives. Some do. It's not, you know, it's not everyone, but many contemplate it. The feelings of isolation and loneliness and feeling stigmatized are rampant. Uh, young people who stutter are bullied by teachers, by parents, by administrators, <clears throat> by authority figures, by coaches, by their peers. Um, they don't uniformly have a refuge the most a lot of them hope for is that a speech therapist will empower them to be a little more fluent or will empower them to not feel constant fear or will empower them to not hide in the back of the classroom when the teacher is asking for volunteers or selecting people to speak generally speaking that's the like big win for young people who stutter and that that's what needs to change that's what Tarot and the Stuttering Association for the Young are working to change, and that's what inspired me to make the film. Um, and I hope, you know, this is a, a very long elevator ride, but, <laughs> but I hope, I hope that when it's people... Top of the new uh, World Trade Center. <laughs> I hope that when people see it, one, they are blown away by the brilliance of these kids, by the how articulate these kids are in expressing what they feel and what they want out of the world. I hope that people are blown away by Tarot's mission, and I hope people are genuinely shocked at what they are missing by not connecting with people who stutter or not connecting with young people who stutter. I think people will be shocked. Okay, so what, I mean, I know you were the director of it, so that's an easy thing to look up, but uh, I want what I'm really asking here is, uh, what were your roles and, and, and what were like all the little minute things that you have done that maybe you didn't even get a credit? Because that's the interesting part of the way. As an independent filmmaker, I find that you're skewing up doing crazy shit on projects. Because uh, you're showing the manpower. <laughs> yeah. And then also, how did you first align with the project? Too? Yeah. Well, the, so the, the project, I, I first came on, on to, I, I first was aware of stuttering in general because I grew up, you know, watching pop culture movies. So the, literally my only experience with stuttering was seeing Adam Sandler make fun of a kid who stuttered in Billy Madison. Like when he goes back to school, there's a kid in the classroom who stutters while he's reading and Billy Madison famously says, T -t 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 today, junior. And that became like a catchphrase 
that me, my peers, everyone I ever knew would know what that was from, would say it to people when they stuttered, thought it was hilarious, because stuttering was a punchline. And, and really, it sort of receded to the back of my mind. I kind of obviously, like, as an adult, didn't make fun of people when they stammered or stuttered, but that was it. That was my only frame of reference. Then a King's Speech came out. That was my only frame of reference. But then a, a producer I knew took me, who saw a film that I did called Turtle Hill Brooklyn, liked it, and said, hey, why don't you come check out the Stuttering Association for the Young's annual gala, where they bring young people that they're working with up on stage and they have them speak to the audience. Michael Alden? Yes, yeah. Michael Alden, yep. Um, who Michael, Michael knew about Say because Michael produced the King's Speech on the West End and on Broadway, the, the, the theater version. Um, and it connected with Say to talk about the film, to, to talk about the, um, the stage play. So I just had drinks with Matt Jared back in New York. Yeah, he which is how I yeah, connected yeah, right, to yeah, Michael. Yeah. yeah. So Michael took me to the gala and was like, do you think there's a film here? I immediately did. And I was at a stage where I had decided not to make small films anymore. I had made three small films where I had to hustle for every dollar. I had to do, you know, half of the editing myself. Um, I had to do, you know, half of the distribution myself. I had worked myself like down to the bone on three really small films and two short films and helping other people with films. And I needed to actually like earn a living and get on with my adult life. So I was like, if I'm going to do... It must be really nice, right? <laughs> yeah, no, actually, I, I caught up on a lot of sleep the last, you know, four years before I did the, the documentary. But um, I, I basically said, I'm not going to make a film until there's an extraordinary subject or real money to do it. And when I went to the gala and I, I saw and heard for the first time what it's like to be a young person who stutters and that nobody else is talking about this. There's no content for young people who stutter or families who are wondering how to help their, their child who stutters. There's nothing out there talking about this. I was blown away by what we as a society had been overlooking and ignoring um, and that nobody else was talking about. So I decided to, to find money to make the film. To your question about like what, what my roles on the film were, basically everything, raising the money, producing it, directing it, handling all of the post-production, not doing the editing composition myself, obviously, but managing the post-production, um, working with a, a fantastic editor, Emmy-winning editor, Steven Sander, who uh, won an Emmy for Miracles and Men, which is the only film that's ever made me care about hockey in my life. <laughs> it's a great 30 for 30. It's amazing. Um, but So working with the editor, working with the, the composers, working with the sound mixer, working with color correction, raising more money to get all that stuff done, uh, working, reaching out to distributors to pitch it, submitting to festivals, literally every every job there is, even you know half of the cinematography. Um, I basically did everything other than hold a boom pole um, on it, and I think that's you know that's life for a lot of filmmakers. That's just what you do. Um, sure. Yeah. How much time was spent fundraising, and what were the sources and percentage of those sources? Obviously, no dollar amounts, but just where did yeah. it come from, and, and what were the ratios? Sure. So we did we did one crowdfunding campaign just to get the film off the ground and raise a little under twelve thousand dollars, which is one twentieth of the budget I thought I would need and ended up needing. Um, but it did allow me to at least get the first couple months shot. 
And then basically every three or four months for four years, I would go out and ask people for more money. And I, I went friends, family, doctor, dentist, um, which I think is really common in indie film. Uh, my producer, Michael Alden, reached out to some contacts, was able to bring in a little money. Um, and then I put my own money into it, um, knowing that I put my own money into it for this basically the second half of the process because I knew I knew what I had captured, I knew it was worth telling. And even though we're just entering distribution now, we're just starting that that sort of last sort of third of the of the marathon, um, no idea if I'm gonna make that money back, no idea what kind of revenue we're gonna bring in. But ultimately the you know, I, I'm putting, by the time this process is done, we'll put five years into this of, of my creative space outside of work. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted it to go all the way. I wanted to see it through the finish line. But for people who are listening, like, I think what you hear about a lot is you hear about the extraordinary crowdfunding stories, the big breakthroughs that light the world on fire. What you hear about are like somebody inherited money and was able to make their million dollar dream film or somebody saved up their life savings and put it into their horror project out in the woods and like you hear about the big 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 splashes that usually the ones that win but the reality for I think for 95% of, of filmmakers is it's it's a combination and it's a marathon right it's a combination of a bunch of people donate a lot of time, donate locations, donate food, um, some donate money. I think it's a combination of what you can bring, what you can get for free. And then if you're lucky, you have some money coming through crowdfunding. You, no matter how great you plan, no matter how much you think your, your story or your concept will move people to donate, it's always going to be a combination and you just have to be crazy frugal. And you have to be really, you have to be kind of a ninja about how you, how you, you know, use that money. For sure, yeah. The one of the, you know, you can talk all you want about uh, how hard and work to the bone it, it, it puts, or it, it is to work in the space where you're, yes, just scratching together those little tiny projects. But I work frequently with people who haven't been through that process, who have always, who started in, you know, kind of a more traditional filmmaking studio uh, level, level place and you just the wastefulness and the inability to solve problems is just rampant and the inefficiency is crazy and like working in that space where you have nothing and you have to make miracles happen makes working in a somewhat cushier space a fucking dream like we you know yeah. we had for ask for jane we had i told you what the budget was and like <laughs> even for a period piece that was like i was like I don't know. We still got money left over. <laughs> you know, the film is out and there's money in the operating account that we never spent. Like, yeah. how the hell, you know? <laughs> uh, it's a dream scenario. If, yeah. you, if you know how to work like that and actually can find a little money, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. Don't get me wrong. If I had sold the first screenplay I ever wrote like 10, 12 years ago and was sucked up into the the indie system or sucked up into the studio system and was able to make things work at that level, that's exactly what I'd be doing right now. But it didn't happen. That's not gonna stop me from making films, right? And if you're still gonna be making films, you have to learn how to stretch the dollar. You have to learn how to beg, borrow, and steal. You have oh, to learn- Hook or crook. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so nuts and bolts. Uh, how many shoot days? 
think probably 80 or 85 shoot days across probably a to- over two years. Okay. Uh, so you said five, right? Like focus subjects. I mean, mm-hmm. there's obviously ancillary players, yep. but there were five focal yep. uh, characters. And so what was the, what was the, I'm sure it varied over 80 some shoot days over a two year span, but what was the roundabouts when you had a shoot day crew scope like? So there were, there were two basic versions. There was when we went to the camp for kids who stutter, Say's annual camp, um, which is probably about half of our film, maybe two thirds of our film, takes place in this camp. There was a team of five, uh, three cinematographers, myself one of those, a sound guy, and a general production assistant. That's about half the crew I would have liked to have had, but team of five. And then for the rest of it, we would go off and do, you know, we'd film in someone's home or we'd, we'd film somebody getting an award or giving a speech, and it would be me and one other cinematographer who also could do sound. Um, and all of those decisions were financial. It was how many, was the maximum number of people we can squeeze into this tiny amount of money we have for whatever we're doing. Um, and that meant I had a camera on my shoulder instead of just directing, which is fine. I love that. And it meant that on some of the shoots, my second cinematographer, my B camera, had to do sound also. Like, you just figure it out. For sure. I don't think you listed off cinematographer in that earlier list of things you did. I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so the production timeline, you mentioned you're you know, just uh, scratching the surface of distribution now, but when, did, when exactly did this all start? The shoot span, the edit timeline, like can you give us like, give me a, brush, a general overview of, of, of how that played out? We started filming April of 2015. Well, give me starting fundraising too that everyone wants to know. started yeah. fundraising April of 2015 <laughs> while we started filming. Um, so every, literally everything started April of 2015, fundraising and filming at the exact same time because there were a couple things we wanted to capture in April. Um, filmed on and off for two years. Uh, the two, two reasons it was on and off is we would run out of money, had to find more, and new and interesting things kept emerging in each of the subjects' lives that we would want to go capture. And, and we noticed that they were evolving as well. So we'd be finding more money, going to film a little bit more for, for two years. And then for the last two years, um, we've been in post-production. So one of the reasons, two reasons post-production has stretched two years is my editor would work, my, my editor would take, you know, four or five, the four or 500 hours of footage that we captured, cut it into, you know, a two hour movie, and then we would work on it. Then we would walk away for a couple months and try to come back with fresh eyes because if we were making a film about um, an Olympian's journey to win gold, there's, there's a finite timeline, there's an arc built in. They win or they don't and everything leads up to that. But we basically just followed lives and had to turn that into a narrative arc in a way. So it took us, it took us two years to not just find that but to find it, hone in on it, get it sound mixed, get it color corrected, get a score in place, um, and then test it, you know, show it to people we trusted, show it to a couple new audiences that that we didn't know any, of whom we knew nobody. Um, So that's the kind of timeline, it's been about four years, now we're heading into, we're going into a bunch of festivals now and then distribution in the summer and fall. Yeah, that's one of the most exhausting components of 
and granted, I, this is not firsthand uh, that I know this, just looking at it from the outside in. You, yeah, you don't, in many cases anyways, you don't know what the story is, so you're finding the story. And like, uh, on top of the ambiguity of that uh, overall structure, question mark, like you also have, yes, you know, you, with the narrative production, you have 24 days. I know tw there's 24 days I have to get all these people to this place, and we're going to do these things with a very defined plan. Granted, it may not adhere to that schedule, but that's the goal. And at least we have an idea of what we're trying to do. With a documentary, like, yeah, like, you know, you're doing this thing for three, four years, and some shit happens. You're like, oh, we got to have that. And now I have to plan a whole new shoot that I was not expecting to plan. Like, yeah. And that could be anywhere in people's lives. You know, the, the compelling thing may be happening God knows where. Like, that's just such a – makes me want to cry to think about having to deal with that – yeah, constant prop up a problem. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the next documentary I make is going to be about a game, a game, one game. <laughs> yep. You know, with high stakes for whoever wins. Right, so right. I know exactly when I'm done filming. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. After something like yeah, the uh, the joke uh, a joke from Athens. Astro Jane was seventy three speaking roles, fifty four locations, twenty four days, a lot of moving parts, and a period piece. And the period piece, yeah, yeah, to complicate it even further. The and Rachel and I many times, the writer director many times over the course of the shoot, uh, made jokes about her next project. I mean, like the next thing I would tell her, like, the next thing needs to be, you know, one location, super simple. She's like, one time she's like, I actually got an idea that's three characters in a in one location. I was like, Rachel, what the fuck do we need that third character for? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, how can that's we right. simplify this? I want this to be simpler after yeah. this experience. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> okay, the most notable constraint, and you know, money is the obvious answer to this, but what did not having enough of that make most difficult for you? The timeline. So, so not having, if we had started this project with a studio involved and they had said you have uh, $250,000 to make your documentary and we're going to release it in 18 months that structure and knowing that that money was in place would have meant we could make a great film and have it out the door in 18 months but not having the money in place and always having to go find it meant we were always behind or we were always having to you know pause two months here or six weeks here or three months there um yeah, it's a, it makes a huge, huge difference. I think, you know, the, the only real plus side to not having the money is we could let the story unfold however we wanted. I could still go, I could go shoot tomorrow and see where these, these kids are five years from when we started, you know, and that would be fine because nobody's waiting, no distributor is waiting with an open date. Um, so story-wise, I think there's an interesting result because of that, but it's a pain in the ass. Do you think that there were times, because like when you're, you know, you're raising fine, when you're trying to raise money and you're pitching this thing to people, like it's a constant internal battle, I feel anyways, like is my presentation good enough? Like, do I have the tools to convince this human being to give me money for my thing? Like, do you feel it at, at all that maybe some of the money you spent or some of the resources you put into this were, were less serving of the overall project and more serving of your need to be in constant finance, finance, uh, raising money mode? Like, putting together things that could sell it now, even unfinished. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? You know, I don't, I don't really know. Ultimately... 
everything I've learned, not just in film, but in, so we have a, my, my partner and I um, have a production company going on eight years, pretty successful, growing, like we pitch all the time. We have a, a, a good client list that's growing. So combining that experience with filmmaking, everything I've seen suggests that if the if you're able to express and clearly demonstrate that you can make people money, that there's gonna be a good return on what they put in. If it's really, really rock solid, money will show up. Um, so when I, when I have a hard time raising money for something, what I'm told, what I see in that is that my pitch isn't clear enough, my pitch isn't strong enough, this may not return money, the content isn't good enough, I'm I'm overvaluing what I can do or what this project can be. And usually that leads me to not do the thing, which is totally understandable, right? We live in a, in a market-based world where like, if that's the case, if the content isn't gonna earn a lot of money, if the market is saying, we don't want this or we may not want this, like it's, it's often good to listen to that. But in the case of the stuttering documentary, in the case of My Beautiful Stutter, I believe that the the time I put in, the money I put in, is in service of a purpose much bigger than me earning a return on what I'm putting into it. The purpose I'm serving is going to inarguably help a lot of people, whether it returns me a lot of money or not, because there is no well-produced, engaging, film that people all over the world have access to that says it's okay to stutter. That does not exist. And so what I want and what I think the return for me is, is I want people, when, when somebody starts talking about, hey, I met a guy who stutters today, he couldn't get up through a full sentence, it was crazy. Which is like a normal conversation that people have every day around this country. What I want is the person they're talking to to be like, Oh, you know, there's actually a cool documentary about that out right now on Netflix. You should check it out. It's called My Beautiful Stutter. I, I want to be the stuttering documentary. And if I can be that, if the film can be that and it can help people, that that is worth what has gone into it. Um, and I know this is a little different than the, the question you were asking, but the question about like how to allocate resources toward pitching or versus toward the film, toward bringing on money, versus actually like putting the money on screen. Um, I don't have a great answer for that. I really don't because I think as artists, like there's always a sliding scale of, of is this worth doing even if the money isn't there? It's hard to there. allocate it that definitely, you know? Yeah. For sure. Um, <clears throat> so you, you maybe kind of leaked at this a little bit, but I asked you for the constraint of not having an ideal amount of money. What is the most memorable benefit? The benefit of not having money? Well, <laughs> nobody, nobody could complain about how I did anything. <laughs> no, there's nobody to give me shit about anything. Hey, I gave you this money. Where is the final product? Hey, I gave you this money. I think you should do this instead of this. Film this character instead of this. Edit it this way instead of this. So the, the upside of not having money is freedom. And that's, that's really valuable. Say, save that answer for the Woodstock Film Festival, actually. They will 
that's there when you uh, like post your first screening, they pull you aside and make you do an interview, mm. and they ask you, "What does fiercely independent mean to you?" And that, that's, oh, that's, the, cool. that's your answer, Ryan. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Nobody to give me shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't want it. Don't need it. <laughs> um, so th- those were questions about your experience not having enough money. Can you think of an instance where someone in the production? that you worked with overcame low budget constraints to do something that you didn't think they had the resources to achieve, accomplish, what have you. And the answer, obviously the answer to this could be no, I can't think of anything, but. Well, I think, I think the, 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 there's two, there's one person in particular, yes. So Steven Sander, my editor, like anytime I have money, I pay him, but he, his commitment and love for this project, and this is how he is, like when he connects with a project, he gives you everything he has. He puts his heart into it. He's not watching the clock. He's not giving you a hard time if you aren't seeing what he's seeing. It's always a dialogue. But the level of, of like unending commitment to getting this right, to experimenting with it, is the only reason that the film is done. And I think everybody who does what we do or is trying to do what we do should really, really keep an eye out for people who have a, a genuine heart, a genuine commitment, are willing to give more of themselves than, than punching the clock. Um, because even if, basically we're all on a long journey doing this, and if, we're, if you're a real filmmaker, you're so gonna hopefully. be, well, you, yeah, if, if, if film really means something to you, you're probably gonna be doing it forever. Whether you're making money at it or not, whether it's every 10 years, every five years, whatever it is. Like, so the people, the people that give you more than, than what you're paying for give you more than punching the clock are, are really wonderful collaborators to hold on to. And the older I get, the more I recognize, the more I empower those people to bring their own intelligence, empathy, art to the project, the more I step away and say, hey, I trust you to run with this. Why don't you see you know, what you can do with it? Um, the better the work becomes. Um, yes, yeah, so that would be Steven. Very cool. What is your biggest mistake on the project to date? Well, I don't make mistakes, Josh. <laughs> no, I think there's so many. Like, there's so many. And they, I think a lot of them come with hindsight of, like, there, there's a lot of shoots I didn't need to do. Like, really knowing who the main characters were. There's a lot of shoots that I did out of the fear that I might miss something. When I, I could have gone... You know, I could have honed in or, or tightened up a little bit in that regard. Um, yeah, that would be the biggest one is I, I should have had in certain places a little more confidence that I was getting the material I needed and been a little bit more tough about what, what shoots I went on and didn't. Cool, cool. Having been through and learned much of what you will from this project at this stage, uh, what is the thing you most want to do differently on your next project? Uh, and it doesn't have to be a mistake necessarily. It can just be, I think we kind of alluded to this, kind of just a different, uh, you know, whatever. Any, any variable different in, yeah. in the next thing, even if it's just so you enjoy it more. <laughs> the, biggest, the biggest thing that is reinforced and has been for everybody for all time in filmmaking, but independent filmmakers have a hard time really like connecting with this is the need to have a name attached in some way. So the the change that I'm always trying to move toward is 
bring on more collaborators early, even if it means the film gets started later. Because having names, whether it's a, a brilliant cinematographer or an actor who's going to be an executive producer or a uh, producing partner that is a huge deal and gets all their documentaries into Sundance, partnering those people, getting, getting their names officially attached in advance and making sure that your material rises to the level that somebody will do that is just from the business side of this so valuable. And the reason the business side matters, I know it's probably obvious to some people, but it's worth repeating all the time, is if, if you're an artist, really what's driving you is you want your voice to be heard, you want to be a part of the conversation or guide a conversation. That, that happens when you partner with somebody who can, who can exponentially increase your reach. And, that's and, and sadly, for better or worse, business success is very closely aligned with people hearing what you have to say, for sure. To, sure. You know, sure. Um, for better or worse. <clears throat> so I'm guessing the uh, you worked with the Say founder to maybe determine this, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, can you just talk to me a little bit about like how you determined who those five characters would be mm -hmm. and what the process was for... Um, choosing who you were going to follow. Yeah, well, at Say, um, they do a lot of uh, things we would commonly refer to as art therapy, but activities with the people, with the young people who come through their program. So just seeing some of the work that the young people had done, getting to know their, their backgrounds, their ages, um, literally their, their socioeconomic backgrounds, their goals, in life, the, the difficult level of difficulty and the types of difficulties that they have at home or in school. Um, and just making sure I had a really wide range of those was how I, I picked who to follow. So if you look at the five main characters, you have a nine-year-old from New Orleans who watched his father shoot himself and try to kill his mom. Um, and, and he was stuttering a little bit before that and it that blew open his, his stutter and exacerbated it significantly. So you have, you have a young man from, from um, a really, really difficult personal background all the way up to uh, a 17, 18-year-old uh, female in Chicago suburbs who's about to graduate high school, go to a great college, um, comes from a, a two-parent home, a really stable upbringing, and her, her difficulty was almost exclusively with bullying in school, um, not with her personal background. And th those two life experiences are really, really different and, and on completely different ends of the, the spectrum. But that level of diversity is what I was looking for um, because stuttering does not discriminate. Stuttering affects everybody of all socioeconomic statuses, all genders, all races, all religions, all backgrounds, all over the world. So to, it was very important to me to find a, a huge diversity in, in the, the backgrounds and the types of struggles that were affecting these these folks. How can we follow the project? And are there any notable what have you's that you would want someone listening to in the next few weeks to hear? Um, I'm I'm stoked that after seeing the film, George Springer, the 2017 World Series MVP, has come on as executive producer, and Paul Rudd, the actor, have come on as executive producer um, in order to help us get the film out to the world. I think that's awesome and I think it's going to have a huge impact on how many people see the film um, and to follow along with everything you can visit the Facebook page 
which is facebook.com slash a beautiful stutter and the Instagram account, which is instagram.com slash my beautiful stutter um, and the website, my beautiful stutter.com. So any updates, all kinds of awesome social content, everything goes up on those three places all the time. And this summer we've already started in festivals and hopefully the film will be in uh, theaters and available on streaming platforms in late September, early October. Very cool. Define the phrase independent filmmaking as you see it. Independent filmmaking is whether you have money, support, a studio, you have a vision and you go get it. You go make that vision into a film, regardless of any other factors, regardless of the quality of camera, regardless of the quality of sound, regardless of your access to locations or money or a team, independent filmmaking is, I can see a thing, I want it to exist, so I will make it exist. That's, that's what I think it is. Beautiful response, Ryan. How can people follow you? Um, I, my Twitter account is mostly me screaming at politicians. <laughs> And that, that is true, I can attest to So I, I don't know if you <laughs> want to follow that, but it's, it's at Ryan Gielen, R-Y-A-N-G-I-E-L-E-N. Um, but I, I, you'd probably just prefer to focus on following the film. <laughs> unless, unless you are as freaked out about our current political climate, in which case you may enjoy following me. But really, I'd just focus on the film, to be honest. <laughs> All right, cool. Thank you very much. Man. Thanks for talking to me. Absolutely. Yeah, that was fun. That is a wrap on episode seven of the Filmmaking the Hard Way podcast. Thank you to Ryan for taking the time to sit down and chat about his new film and putting up with my uh, rowdy pug that I brought along to the interview and, and probably a poor producing decision. And if you'd like to follow the pod, uh, you can do so, uh, or subscribe to the pod, rather. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Podbean, uh, Himalaya, um, probably anywhere else you'll see your pods. And uh, if you could leave a rating or review uh, for the pod if you dig what I'm doing here uh, so people can find it more easily. And if you want, uh, you can jump on and read the Filmmaking the Hard Way blog or grab the book at nyehentertainment.com forward slash FTHW. You can follow me on Twitter at Josh Folan or on Instagram at my shift key is broke. And till next time.